News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I think every parent could probably answer this question with a great story. Have your kids ever done something to embarrass you in public? Come on. They must have, right? There's a reason why we're talking about this. Our contributor, Scott Shantz, joins us this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you. Have your kids ever embarrassed you in public? Oh, my gosh. This like My kids are young. You know, Simi, I know your kids are a little bit older than mine. I have a, a, little, <laughs> little, bit, a little bit. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old, so I feel like my uh, my like library of embarrassing stories is just getting started with children. Okay, so the reason why we're talking about this is this adorable Father's Day video that has gone viral this morning. It just happened yesterday afternoon. It was a Boston Red Sox game. Father there, probably for Father's Day, I would imagine. You'd think, yeah. With his two very young sons. They're both under the age of 10, clearly. And one of them uh, manages to get a foul ball. person in front of them caught a foul ball turned around and handed it to the younger son, who got so excited he did this. The Yankees foul ball goes into the upper decks in left field. A gentleman gets the ball and then goes to hand it to one of the kids behind him. And the boy immediately then says, I don't want that Yankees ball, throws it back onto the field. Big brother then erupts into tears. Dad having to hold on to both of them to calm them down on Father's Day while mom was at the concession stand, just epitomizing what it means to be a father during the good and the bad times. This Did you watch this video? Yeah, It is yeah. so funny because you could just immediately see the look of horror on the older brother's face and then the father realizing, well, there goes Father's Day because <laughs> the kid and then this younger one realizing what he had done, he bursts into tears yeah. and the next thing you know, everybody's crying in the stands. The the older child is literally inconsolable. Yes. He's he's like melting down. The dad he's like got his head on the dad's shoulder. It's like it's like a family pet passed away. It's unbelievable. But it these are the moments, right? Because they're really inconsequential. Like no one got hurt, you know. Oh, Every, but no, you're but, dealing with that. That's that's now a family story. Yeah. That is, I think I saw somebody put it on social media is that's the reason why the older brother becomes a villain in a comic <laughs> book later in life, right? That's the defining thing right there. I mean, there. that is true. He's The father has to like take a little bit of sentiment. And this is one of the things that helps me in these embarrassing moments is that, you know, one day, hopefully not too far down the line, we're going to be able to laugh at this, provided you don't become uh. a villain. But there is some humor in it, right? And then it ended up that the Red Sox got them, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Red Sox off for that. heard all about it because it went viral during the game because people were watching it and laughing about it. Red Sox heard about it, sent up a couple of sign balls and some signed jerseys. So in the end, they were fine. But even the dad said when they interviewed him afterwards, it's still going to take us a while to get over this <laughs> because of what happened in the moment, that, that trauma that happened in the moment. And so... Your kids at some point, Scott, they will do something that embarrasses you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not that they haven't. They definitely have. But I don't have anything on this scale that's been captured on social media yet. And because of that, I don't have anything that's paid dividends, like mm. getting Red Sox jerseys and all that type it's of not stuff. Go- no, no, to no, me. no, no, no. It's not going to pay dividends. For yeah. the vast majority of people, when your child does something that really embarrasses you, there will be no, oh, the Red Sox to the rescue moment. Like for me, I remember when my daughter was just a toddler. So I guess two years old, I think we just had one at that point, two years old. And I was in London Drugs and I really needed, there's a bunch of stuff that I absolutely had to get. And she chose that day, that moment, of course, to just have a complete 
meltdown because there was something she wanted and I had to say no. Right. And even though I needed to get this stuff and she was making a fuss and getting worse and worse and worse about it, I just had to say, no, I'm sorry, we can't get that this time. We'll get it maybe next time. Like, we'll see how it goes. And just full on screaming, screeching at the top of her lungs, complete meltdown in the aisle at London Drugs in Ladner back in the day. Yeah. And I just, I remember being so tired, right? Like full time working mom. Like I just put the full basket down, picked her up under my arm, walked out the door. Yeah. <laughs> so and I apologized to whatever worker had to put all those. Items <laughs> on the and I think that that's like the textbook example, right? Because my younger daughter is two right now. My wife and I often say she's like literally a cartoon character because for that exact reason that she'll pick a random thing off of a, a shelf. Don't know. That's not even something that she would want. It's like a pack of disposable razor blades or something. And we're like, you can't have that. And it's literally from happy go lucky two year old to face down on the floor, all four limbs flailing, scream, and we just, we often kind of stand there and look at each other and we're like, there's no rationale for this. No. How, how do you deal with this other than simply say, I guess we're leaving? And you put the stuff down and you apologize to everybody profusely. And they, I, I feel like most people fortunately get it, like the Red Sox dad. Most people see and sympathize and no one is too upset. They sympathize. It's like, oh, you're in that stage, eh? Okay. Yeah. Yes, good luck. most parents, I think, would sympathize yes. with you. If you don't have kids at that point, you're just an irritation to other people who are in the vicinity, right? And for that, I apologize. <laughs> and I apologize as well for all the times in the past. Uh, we do want to hear from you on this because I am positive parents out there have got a story about how embarrassing your child was or did. Or what, what did they do that just mortified you in public, perhaps? Would love to hear yours. Now, you can call our buzz line and tell this because I do love it when people tell those stories in person. That's 604-331-2899. If an email is faster, do that. You could email me, simmy at cknw.com. My younger one, Scott, when he was a baby, and I used to, I remember, drop my daughter off at preschool and then take him grocery shopping, and I'd put him in the buggy, uh-huh. right? And he was so quiet and everything, and you, you would, people would be like, oh, he's so sweet, he's so quiet, he's so easygoing. Yeah, sure. As soon as you had your back turned, though, it was one of those things where I'd turn around and there'd be a bottle of ketchup smashed on the floor at the grocery store. And it got to the point where I had to keep going to this particular grocery store, even though some days I didn't want to. But just because the employees there were so nice and lovely to me. They knew. They know, like, clean up on aisle five. You knew that I was there with that kid because he did this. He probably did this like two or three times. Right, right. Simmy's here. Get the cleaning staff ready. Yeah, get the mop ready because that kid is back in the uh, cart. He would just, and very casually just kind of lean over and knock something over onto the, and that's it, broken. Yeah, my daughter has the, uh, you know, sometimes we'll do this where we'll open a, a box for them while we're pushing the cart around, and she'll just take it and have, you know, a couple of fishy crackers and then just upend it. No. Just dump the, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, at least if she does it at home, we can clean them up and, you know, kind of try to salvage some, but it's happened in the grocery store too. Okay, so see, we're talking about kids and embarrassing moments after this viral moment at the Boston Red Sox game over the weekend. Dad, two sons, son three. The, the foul ball that somebody gave him back onto the field and his older brother just had a meltdown and started crying and then the younger brother starts crying and then the dad, it just, it just looked like awkward family situation. When have your children absolutely mortified you in public? 
Call our buzz line and tell us about this story because I would love to hear them. I'm hoping there's some really good ones out there. 604-331-2899 or simi at cknw.com. And Scott, we'll check in with you later. Sure thing. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, let's talk about what we heard in the news in the last week or so, that BC has become the first province in Canada to provide universal coverage for some medications to treat opioid use disorder. Now, the argument is that that's more cost-effective to treat in this way than to deal with the effects of opioid use in the population. But you know, we wanted to explore that a little bit more, talk more about it. So Dr. Bowden Nozick is an Associate Professor of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. He has studied this issue and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Simi. How much does opioid use disorder cost us? Like what kind of a, a cost is that in the healthcare system? We don't think of it just in raw dollars because it comes from a range of different places. Uh, If we're not paying for medicine, we're paying for emergency visits and hospitalizations and crime victimization and everything that comes along with it. So the medicine itself is not that expensive. Um, A lot of the cost of the treatment is rolled up into what we pay pharmacies and what we pay doctors as, as well as like labs for um, the urine drug screening that happens alongside treatment. Okay, so what did you think then of this news uh, from the provincial government last week that they are going to uh, provide the treatment for opioid use disorder for free? Uh, I think it needed to happen. I think it's long overdue. Um, you know, keep in mind, a lot of people are already receiving coverage for this treatment. If you're on social assistance, if you're on one of the other special pharmacare plans, you're already getting this for free. Um, they, The province actually soft-launched this through their expansion of the Plan G, which was, um, which was a special plan designed uh, initially for mental health medications for people who couldn't afford them. Um, they expanded Plan G to cover OAT um, about Five or six years ago, we showed in the provincial health admin data that it worked. Um, It's one of the few things that's worked to keep people on to treatment. People discontinued about 12% less uh, than we expected them to over an 18-month stretch uh, when we evaluated it then. So this is long overdue, and and it will make a a positive uh, positive impact. So I know you've looked at the costs of this, haven't you? Yes. Okay, so what did you find in terms of the cost savings? You talked about what what opioid disorder costs us, but providing these kinds of drugs for free will will there be more uptake? Do you think like is it is it was cost a barrier to some people in your in your opinion or from your research? Yeah, I think cost is a barrier for some just uh, just to stick with it. Um, but I'll emphasize that you know a lot of the cost. I'll, I'll come back to pharmacies, doctors labs, pharmacies especially, Um, and I think um, the added cost of paying for these these people's out-of-pocket payments, it will more than be offset by changes that we're expecting to see in uh, the clinical guidelines that are coming for OUT. Basically, um, when you're on this kind of treatment, uh, for the most part, people have to come in every day to pick up their medications from pharmacy. Every time that happens, the pharmacy charges a dispensing fee as well as as a witness ingestion fee. And that runs the province an extra 30 to $50 million a year compared to if we were just asking them to come in once a week or once every two weeks. 
Now, we have a good idea that this change is coming. Um, the U.S. and Ontario both relaxed restrictions for take-home dosing during the COVID era, and the sky didn't fall. People stayed on treatment. There, weren't, uh, there wasn't an uptake in um, drug-related deaths where uh, the treatments were indicated. Um, all signs are pointing uh, towards us relaxing our restrictions and, and making it easier for people to stick with this kind of treatment. So do we know what the barriers are? Like if we're making it easier for people to get it and that the treatment can be effective, why isn't, I guess, there more uptake of it? Well, it's it's a few different factors. Uh, like I say, if people are coming to pharmacy every day to pick up their meds, I, I don't know about you, I know that I couldn't stick with that kind of treatment. Uh, if they're having to go across town to uh, a lab to provide their urine screens up to like once a week, that's a problem. Um, you know, people have trouble engaging with the healthcare system as it is. Um, and the other issue here is that um, we're, we're chasing uh, a changing epidemic, right? Over the past six years, fentanyl has hit the streets. It's completely overtaken heroin as the, as the drug of choice, and that's a much more potent opioid. And we've struggled to, to keep up with the dosing. Um, so OAT is, is a substitution treatment. You're trying to eliminate the withdrawal symptoms a person is having by substituting a different kind of drug that doesn't provide euphoria. That's the treatment. And um, tolerance has gone way up, and we simply haven't been able to, to keep pace with that. And it's one of the reasons why retention is such a problem uh, in this province. It's been declining for 12 years straight, and this is why the province chose to act at this time. So do you feel like, and I think you alluded to this a little bit, is that this is the beginning. You feel there are more accessibility changes coming? Yeah, there have to be. Um, you know, take-home dosing is, is a big factor, but I mentioned urine drug screening. That's something that we do a lot of. It's not an evidence-based practice. Nobody's ever tested whether uh, doing regular urine drug screening as much as on a weekly basis actually helps people stay on treatment and helps doctors make decisions. Um, we spend another 6 to $10 million a year on urine drug screening, and we really don't haven't until very recently known what it's done for us. And um, our most recent work is showing that it's really not worthwhile to, to use beyond the, the induction period, beyond the first few weeks that people are getting onto treatment. So in your opinion then, Dr. Nosek, can all of these things make a difference? Can we help significant numbers of people beat opioid use disorder? It's going to take a multi-pronged solution. I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of different things that we need to do um, to, to make treatment more accessible and easier to stick with. But it's, that's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, this province has had a really strong emphasis on harm reduction that alone is, is not going to do it either. When I talk about harm reduction, I'm talking um, naloxone kit distribution, supervised consumption sites. Those are all useful, but it's none of these things is going to win the war, so to speak, on its own. We need to spend more time um, thinking about prevention, uh, dealing with mental health. Um, we've found in our provincial data something like three out of four people with opioid use disorder had uh, a pre-existing mental health condition. So this is uh, a challenge that we need to face head on. And of course, um, you know, inequality, uh, poverty, 
we need to deal with some of these key drivers uh, if we're going to have a meaningful impact on the epidemic. Three out of four. What a statistic. Uh, Dr. Nozick, thank you so much for joining us this morning. No problem. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Man, this next story has it all. And the crazy thing about it is that it's all true that it happened to our next guest. Grand Chief Ronald Derrickson from BC spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine, spent most of the last 20 years actually in Ukraine. Uh, He was there involved in the political economic life, doing business there, you know, working in diplomatic circles. And boy, the stuff that he came across, I can't even describe it. So you know what? We're going to get him to join us and talk about it right now. Grand Chief Ronald Derrickson is with us, the owner and president of RMD Group and the author of Ukrainian Scorpions, A Tale of Larceny and Greed. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Now, this story really is crazy. How did you get involved in all this? Like, what were you doing over in Ukraine? Well, actually, the first time I didn't even know where it was. You know, uh, I went over there to be best man at a friend's wedding and uh, and got to know it and uh, really liked the people there and went back again and again and again and finally started doing business. I started a agriculture endeavor of 9,800 hectares and built up, used the most modern Canadian equipment and... Uh, and was doing really well with the no-till development there. And what happened? Well, uh, what happens with the Ukraine uh, is like kids around the candy jar, they can't resist. So you go in and you take investment, they set up committees in every level of government how to extract money out of you. There's absolutely not one area of government or a private business that isn't corrupt. Really? Like, is it, and you really? came across that like over and over and over again? Over and over again. From the judges to the lawyers to, to, to the business people, all corrupt. And so how did you deal with that as, as somebody who was not from there and trying to do business there? How do you deal with it? Well, it was a, it was a you know, when I first went there, there was a big boom. In, in real estate, and that's my business, real estate. So I made a lot of money, and I turned and I invested that money into agriculture. I met this guy from uh, uh, from the United States with the Ukraine and, and invested in some projects there. But from day one, they were counting my money. And so what happened to it all? You know, uh, I, I, during the the court cases, I met one honest judge. You know what happened to him? He got replaced for being honest. Really? So you had to take this through the court system. So you really had experience with, with all aspects of it. Every single aspect. You know, if you had an apartment, if you wanted to, to uh, move a wall, you had to pay a bribe. And they, they, they pay uh, the people around an apartment to turn you in, and they get some money to that if, if you move a wall without getting a permit. So what eventually, Everything. what happened then to, like, your business and to the money that you had there? Did you just say, you know what, I'm out at some point? Well, 
it got to a point where I wouldn't put another dime in. But I made everybody who cheated me their life pretty miserable. So when you see what's happening there now, what goes through your mind? Well, right even now during this war, when they sort of need uh, uh, investment and dollars, they're, still, they're, they're dividing up the pie, even now. I mean, in every level of government, Zelensky tries hard, and he's a pretty good leader, but, the, you know, the oligarchs in Ukraine are just stealing it blind. And where they catch him, they're, they're, they're punishing him. But it's so endemic. You know, Ukraine could have been in the European Union 15 years ago. They just couldn't get their act together. They couldn't clean up the, the, the courts. They couldn't clean up the police. Well, I mean, you didn't, if you walk downtown, you have, you have to pay 50 agreements to some policeman just so he wouldn't bother you. You know what? Your book, your book is really something. I think a lot of people are going to find it really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay, you're welcome. That is Grand Chief Ronald Derrickson. You know him as well. I mean, he was Grand Chief of uh, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs back in 2012. He was elected Chief of West Bank First Nation, um, you know, in the interior back in 1976. He's been doing business for decades here, tried to do business in Ukraine. And the book is called Ukrainian Scorpions, A Tale of Larceny and Greed. Uh, boy, what a tale he has to tell. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we're going to talk about libraries. Scott Shantz is back with us this morning. And Scott, before you talk about libraries, can I very quickly talk about an embarrassing kid story? Yes, absolutely. Because this was the other thing that Scott and I were discussing this morning. Greg sent this great story, hilarious. 25 years ago, his son was two years old. He and his wife were at a North Shore Credit Union branch over, you know, in Edgemont Village, uh, in an office discussing financial issues with uh, an employee of the bank. And then they hear sirens and they hear lots and lots of sirens. And they're like, oh, what's going on outside? Well, it turns out the police were responding to a robbery in progress at the bank because their angelic toddler oh, had been no. pressing the panic button <laughs> under the desk like crazy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And he said, I did not go out to meet the police. My <laughs> wife and I stayed in the office. <laughs> that one is probably the best one so far. So good. Oh, so my good. gosh. Yeah. Send it to us if you've got an embarrassing kid story. We love to hear them. Now, we're talking about libraries. Yeah. When was the last time, Simi, that you went to the public library? Um, I like to just like, I sometimes walk by, check it out. Yeah. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people. Like we work downtown. It's always busy by the way. Yeah, for sure. We work downtown where there's, you know, a huge public library. I know you like to read. I like to read. Uh, the library is this place that forever has been, uh, where you go just to get books. Right. Other than that, it's like, Oh, I need to do a research paper or maybe I need to like, uh, go to a kid's story time to occupy the kids for a little bit. The library, that's sort of been the identity, but but really, it's so much more than that. They have tons of other stuff you can do there. You can check out musical instruments. You can take classes. You can borrow ebooks. Tons of stuff. But the face of the library is changing. It's being called the last public space. And with that comes 
um, some different challenges, I would say, that librarians are facing. And I wanted to talk about this. So I got in touch with Christina DeCastel. She's the CEO and chief librarian here at Vancouver Public Library. And I asked her about that statement, is Vancouver the last public space? And I asked her if she thought that was the case. I would narrow it to the last indoor public space where everyone has the opportunity to be and to spend as much time as they need. It, we certainly have some beautiful outdoor public spaces in Vancouver and the, the library as a, a last remaining indoor public space that is non-commercial where you can be around all of the people that make up your community and see that diversity is really important. We, um, we learned that people really see the library as a place that increases their understanding and respect for different perspectives and ways of life. When we did our survey, 80% of people said that being in the library and going to programs and reading books helped them understand the people around them better. And that's such an important part of a public space like the library. There's a story out of Edmonton that librarians there are trained to administer um, naloxone in the case of overdoses within the library because, as we discussed, it is a public space. And and people come there um, and some sometimes for a, a bit of refuge. Um, is that a concern at the Vancouver Public Library? Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, so... The reductions in funding for programs that support people with mental health issues, things like legal aid and other forms of social support, have they've really declined over the past 20 years or so. And so that means that the people who are using libraries, some of them may not have visited libraries 20 years ago, um, but they are very much a part of our our day-to-day patrons now, and our library branches, there are 20 besides Central Library around the city, and each one of those branches is different. They're very much a reflection of the communities where they're located. And so with the two branches that we have in Vancouver's downtown east side, our Natsamut Strathcona branch and our Carnegie branch, it is more likely that in, in a visit to the library, there may be someone who's experiencing addiction issues and might be overdosing. So it is something that does happen in some neighborhoods of our city. And I think that we're well aware of that with the conversations that go on in the community. Do Vancouver librarians have that same training to administer something like naloxone? So administering naloxone isn't part of staff's job description at VPL, but we support staff who've chosen to take personal naloxone training and carry a kit themselves. And then we depend on emergency services to support staff and patrons. Vancouver is a bit different because we have safe injection sites. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit better uh, than what people in some other cities in Canada are experiencing, but it still Mm -hmm. happens. Are there things in, in that conversation that are falling to librarians, now is it affecting the library? Because librarians are there to um, help people who want to learn or want to study better or want to like further themselves. And is, is that part of the job being um, diminished because of the cutting back on other social programs and things just kind of roll downhill? So certainly most people who work in libraries came into them because they care about literacy and reading and 
providing people with equal access to information, helping to, to cultivate the curiosity in everyone. And the more time that we spend supporting the absence of social services that existed in community before, the less time we can spend on those core functions of libraries. So it is, it is a loss of the, the time that we were able to spend on, on those core library functions in the past, we are here to support our community. So it's a conversation we're having all the time. It's how to balance those varying needs. But every day in Vancouver, we're still delivering story times that reach babies and young children. And we're delivering incredible programs that help adults to open their eyes to new experiences and new perspectives. So we're, we are managing the balance um, as much as it is an ongoing challenge as it is in cities across Canada. Fantastic. Christina DeCastell, she's Vancouver Public Library's Chief Librarian and CEO. Uh, thank you so much for the chat today and for the information. And uh, we all really, really appreciate the work you do. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. So some interesting thoughts there about mm -hmm. uh, what librarians and libraries are facing uh, kind of across the country. Now, uh, Nicholas Hewn Brown is a writer from Toronto, and he's kind of spoken a bit about this, about how uh, as we've sort of let this stuff fall onto libraries and librarians, that there could be a danger that we lose some of the uh, great things about our public library system. He's going to be my guest tomorrow to okay. follow up on the future of this. It, it really is amazing. Libraries are such an incredible and useful public space for so many people, right? Such a resource for people. Absolutely. We're going to be talking more about that. If you'd like to weigh in on the impact of libraries in your community, please do. Scott's going to continue this conversation tomorrow. Uh, you can email me, Simi at cknw.com. Or Scott, what's your email address again? Scott at cknw.com. I love that. This is Mornings with Simi. Is this the end of the road or is there more to come in the Surrey policing situation? Mayor Brenda Locke on Friday announced that the city council has voted to retain the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction, but that's all we know. The vote happened in a closed meeting. Uh, no word on who voted for what or what the rationale was or the reasoning was all behind closed doors. And now what happens then to the hundreds of people who are already working for the Surrey Police Service? Is this really the end or is there more to come? So joining us now is Norm Lipinski, Chief Constable of the Surrey Police Service. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Good to be here. Now, you've had the weekend to kind of absorb some of this information. Where is the Surrey Police Service at today? Well, when the vote occurred on Friday, of course, it was disappointing for us. It was also surprising, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the province, as you know, uh, reviewed all submissions, and they took months to review the submission of the Surrey Police Service, the RCMP, City of Surrey, etc. And they were looking at it from a lens of adequate and effective policing. And uh, as we know, they made a very, very strong recommendation to continue with the Surrey Police Service. So as of today... Uh, there's two parts of this story. Uh, one part is the vote on Friday, but the other part is the provincial responsibility for public safety. 
And uh, not only in Surrey, but of course the province, but specifically to Surrey, they've already made a determination in their report, which resulted in a strong recommendation to continue with the Surrey Police Service. So we're waiting for the province to make the final decision because, again, it's two parts. It's uh, any municipality can certainly uh, pick uh, their policing model, but the province has to approve it through the lens of adequate and effective policing. Okay, so then it sounds as though, Chief Lipinski, you're counting on the province to perhaps overrule this decision. Yes, I am, because uh, looking at their report, and I've gone through it numerous times, and they're the ones that uh, really have all the information, uh, including all the vacancies and the plans and how to fill those vacancies, and also how Surrey Police Service can move forward. Uh, we've been at this for two and a half years. We have a template. We typically put uh, 35 police officers uh, in Surrey Detachment every second month. We've, of course, been on a pause here for a number of months. But nonetheless, we've worked out agreements, and I think there are six or seven agreements, three levels of government. And uh, I think one of the most important things to remember is that we have no issue recruiting. We have no problem recruiting brand new recruits that go to the Justice Institute of BC. We have no problem recruiting experienced officers. And uh, the applications are still coming in, of course, uh, much less reduced, but uh, we still have a whole bank of applications. And I think that's very important when you look at policing across the country and all agencies are struggling to recruit, but we are not. But do you not have, do your employees, the officers not have concerns right now, given what happened on Friday? Are you not worried that they're going to quit or they want to move on because it doesn't look like there is a big future here at this point for the Surrey Police Service? Of course, there is a high level of anxiety. I, I encourage the provincial government to make a quick decision. Uh, you've heard me speak on this uh, a couple of weeks ago prior to the council decision. I think for everybody, we have to come down to a final, final decision. Uh, since the uh, Friday council meeting, I'm not aware of any resignations uh, coming into my office. Uh, But yes, uh, there is uh, concern. And, uh, you know, people came here from across Canada and uh, nowhere that they, no thought process uh, was there about uh, perhaps this will not work out and it'll be reversed. It doesn't happen in policing to to essentially terminate 330 police officers. So we have uh, families that came here, which is to say that uh, both uh, both partners uh, joined the SPS. So if they're out of a job, then uh, there's no income. So yes, there is that concern. And I, I encourage that uh, we move through this as quickly as possible. Do you have any indication from the provincial government on when you and your officers might hear about this? 
No, I don't. Uh, but what I will be doing is, uh, if not today, tomorrow, I'll be uh, getting in touch with them and uh, asking them uh, because we, we do need that uh, close turnaround. Now, one thing I do not know is uh, this issue about the documents. Uh, apparently, the uh, province was to sign NDAs and, and get the corporate report from the city of Surrey. Uh, I, I was advised on Friday that did not occur as a Friday. I don't know what uh, will occur today or tomorrow but obviously they have to get the report they have to review the report and uh, they have a whole bank of uh, subject matter experts uh, uh, that reviewed all our submissions and are very very conversant with the with the uh, layout of policing in Surrey and uh, of course by extension BC what kind of relationship, Chief Lipinski, can can the Surrey police have with the local government if you're counting on the local government being overruled by the province? And the whole thing about Surrey police was that it was supposed to be local, you know, t- controlled by the local government or having input from the local government. This doesn't seem to set it up for a very good cooperation, good future. Well, right now, it's it's fair to say that uh, the relationship is uh, somewhat frosty. Uh, but I look at it from the perspective of, uh, okay, so let's move forward. Let's get a decision, uh, optimistic that it's a favorable decision for SPS. And as professionals, uh, we work through this and uh, look for the cooperation of all the parties. And uh, three levels of government, let's keep that in mind. Uh, But certainly, yes, uh, the municipal government is so, so important because it's local accountability through the municipal government, but with one clear distinction, and that is I report to a police board. The police board uh, is chosen by the province, and the police board reports to the province doesn't report to mayor and council. So that's the way it is in, in uh, all provinces under the Constitution. So all municipal police services in B.C., they have police boards. They, they report the chief reports to that police board for budget, for policy, for strategic direction. At what point do you consider this done? Let the decision is done. This, this is the end of the road. Well, I consider it done when the province makes their final decision. Hopefully they can do that uh, in the near future. And uh, I I think the question that they will ask is they will look at that corporate report. They will assess it uh, uh, in comparison to their report that was uh, tabled on uh, April 28th. And, uh, you know, it's been uh, almost two months. So the question is, what's changed? What's changed from uh, a planning perspective, uh, vacancy rate, filling that in? Uh, what's changed in this new report? So I, I don't foresee them taking that much longer to review it since they're very conversant with the situation. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you for your time this morning. You're most welcome. Thank you. That's Norm Lipinski, Chief Constable of the Surrey Police Service, saying it ain't over till it's over. And he views it not being over until the province says it is over. We know how Surrey Council voted. Well, we don't know exactly how they voted. We just know they voted to retain the RCMP. And sounds like the Surrey Police Service is counting on the province at this point to make that final call. All eyes now are on Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about a movie right now. The movie is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. You've probably heard about it. Maybe you've seen it already. Well, over the weekend, we've heard that this movie was actually removed from movie theaters in a few countries around the world. And we don't know exactly why that is. They didn't announce any explicit bans, but there are some indications that the film is not going to be shown in some Muslim-majority countries because there's quite a bit of censorship there for children and younger viewers. And so what is the reason? What could it possibly be? Well, there's a lot of focus because the official Saudi cinema Twitter page stated that the film would not be approved if it contradicts the nation's media content regulations. What could it be? Well, there is this one frame, just one frame, where there's a poster in the background that features the trans pride flag and the words protect trans kids. One frame in the movie. And that's what the thinking is. That's what has caused this to happen. It got us thinking about how much effort goes into producing a movie like this. And that one frame can have such an impact. And, you know, everywhere else, this movie has been really heralded as just absolutely amazing. There's different animation styles. There's so many different spider people at this point in the movie. We wanted to talk to somebody who was involved in the making of it. So joining us now is Kelsey Wagner, supervising animator for Sony Pictures and Animation Image Works. Kelsey, thanks for joining us. Hi, great to be here. Tell me about your work on the movie. What did you do? I'm a supervising animator, so that means I'm one of uh, 10 individuals leading teams of up to 14, 16 people. We're producing the motion, the animation, the performance on the characters. And uh, we're doing it to pre-recorded dialogue, so from our big actors like Shamik Moore and uh, Haley Steinfeld. Okay, so to produce like even a frame of a movie like this, what does that take? Well, <laughs> multi-departments, a huge team effort. And I mean, looking at the film as it stands right now, you can tell that it's just a colossal undertaking um, and a massive piece of artwork. So everything from our look dev department who creates the, the sort of concept art, to modeling, to rigging, so that we can actually move these characters, uh, sets and environments, to us in animation, who we're, uh, we're making the characters perform, and then it passes on down through uh, lighting and rendering and, and compositing, and eventually it's scored and put up on screen, like what you see in the theaters now. Wow. How many frames per second are you working with? Uh, 24 frames per second, just like uh, your standard cinematic release. 24 frames per second. And does it amaze you that even one frame can be found and singled out? Because you would think, who's going to see that? Uh, it doesn't. You know, our fan base, um, our fan base and, of course, uh, other nations have uh, conforming laws. And we have to, we have to conform our films and, and what we output uh, to many nations' sort of guidelines, etc., uh, our fan base is meticulous in going frame by frame, looking for Easter eggs. So it's not really a surprise. Okay, that's crazy. And so when you are working on a movie like this, how do you decide, oh, we're going to put an Easter egg in here? Or is that all part of like the filmmaker's overarching plan for the movie? It's a bit of both. 
you know, I think we are given enough autonomy at Sony on films like this where we're free to pitch ideas to include Easter eggs like that. Uh, it does go through a review process, and of course it even goes through a legal review process. Um, if it makes it in and, it, you know, it goes up on screen and, you know, sometimes uh, <laughs> not everyone loves it. Right. But this a movie like this, is this years of work? Years. Absolutely years. So I myself was on it uh, to close to two years, I, I would think. I think this probably got, went on for more than three. So it is a colossal undertaking. And getting the people or finding people to work on this movie, is that challenging these days? Uh, does everybody want to work on a movie like this? Well, we, of course, you get lots of applicants, um, you know, but uh, as as the movie would say, not everyone can wear the mask. I mean, it takes a really, really high bar to to meet the standards and the quality that we're looking for. And, of course, what we do is we source people from all over the world. Um, you know, at least within animation, I know that we had over 20 people from over 25 nations uh, working closely with us. In fact, I'm sure it's higher than that, but I kind of lost count after a while. <laughs> uh, a lot of people working remote. We have uh, people on the east coast of North America, not just in Canada. We have people in Culver City in our sort of home base. And, of course, in Vancouver. Kelsey, as a supervising animator, though, you would have to obviously oversee a lot. So you'd have to check work like you're doing quality control. How detailed is that? Oh, once again, I mean, it's frame by frame. We're looking every day at every shot, multiple passes on the shot and the performance going through it, you know, fine tooth comb sort of work. We start broad and then we work towards being like extremely detailed and polished. How long does it take to get a frame done? Well, we're generally looking at, I'm going to say what we were producing was about two and a half seconds a week. So you're looking at somewhere around 60 frames, 58 frames, somewhere in that, in that sort of neighborhood. Wow. That's, that's incredibly detailed now, work there. Yeah. Now, I, you know, of course, if you're a live action actor, you do a take and, and you know, that two and a Two seconds takes two seconds. <laughs> but in animation, you know, that can take a week. Sometimes it takes two to three weeks, depending on the complexity of the shot. Right. And so there were so many different styles of animation that were used in this particular movie. Does that make it even more challenging? Much more. You know, so there are considerations on any given character, on how we're animating them, what style they're going to, you know, take on in their final render and their final look. And you can see it throughout the film. You can see our character, Hobie Brown. He, he's animated completely different than others, even though it's very subtle. Uh, we refer to it in animation as being on twos. So that means every second frame is held and, it, and is basically a duplicate of the frame before it. But Hobie Brown is like on threes and fours and different portions of his body are on different timings. So there is a lot of careful consideration that goes into crafting each and every shot and each and every character and, of course, the worlds that they live in. Oh, it's phenomenal. Okay, now we know there's going to be a third one. Will you be working on that too? Well, I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, after the success of this one, I would sign up, definitely. Oh, do you have to sign up or do you get assigned the work? <laughs> we pretty much get assigned the work. I mean, it's a big company and we have multiple productions running at any given time. 
And so, of course, you know, there's resource management that comes into play. But, uh, you know, if if I have a say in it, yeah, I, I'll be working on it. All right. So it didn't matter how hard that was. You're thinking that was that was amazing. I'm going to do it again. Labor of love. Sure sounds <laughs> yeah. like it. Kelsey, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. 